John chapter 8 is where we find ourselves this morning. John chapter 8. I'm going to read God's Word to us this morning, and then we will uh, dismiss our kids for Children's Church after the Scripture reading. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four gospel accounts, one gospel, his name is Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, number four. Chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right, talking to Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know. That you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? (laughs) You want to wear a helmet when you say that to God, right? (laughs) Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We've been singing about that today. Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. We are now in our fifth sermon, final sermon, but number five. In this beautiful chapter, this glorious chapter, this long and beautiful chapter of chapter eight in John. Jesus, if you remember, he's in Jerusalem. The Jewish people from all over the region have been celebrating what is known as the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. You can find that in Leviticus 12 and Deuteronomy 19. It's around September, October. It was a celebrating of this ingathering of the harvest like grapes and olives, and they were celebrating and thanking God for his provision for them, but it was also a time, this Feast of Booths was a time where they were celebrating and recalling God's provision during their wilderness wandering for 40 years. Find that in the Old Testament. The festival lasted about seven days, well, it lasted seven days, and every so often it would culminate on the eighth day where there would be special celebrations and festival assemblies. People living in that day would put booths and tabernacles. They would live in booths and tabernacle. They would make these makeshift houses they would dwell in. If you lived in the city, you'd put them on a flat roof or in a courtyard. If you're in a rural area, you'd put them in the backyard. They would live in these booths. Um, I mentioned before, growing up in Rockland County, you used to see the, the booths built on the back porches of many of the Hasidic Jews' home as they celebrated the booths and tabernacles. Each one of these feasts, the three feasts, were mandatory, so the place was very, very, very crowded. It was packed. Every Jewish male who was able to go was supposed to go to Jerusalem during three feasts. Feast of Tabernacle is one of them. The Feast of Booth is one of them. As we remember, as we looked at a few weeks ago, 
This mandatory feast had many different ceremonies. And in the ceremony, one of them was what is called the water ceremony. And this is where they remembered Moses' provision for them in the wilderness, where he broke the rock and water poured forth. And Jesus stood up in the midst of this ceremony and says in verse 7, chapter 7, verse 37, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says, I'm the ultimate provider. I'm the ultimate satisfier. I'm the ultimate one who can give you living water that can satisfy your thirsty souls. Also during the feast, there is what is called the uh, illumination of the temple. As they were celebrating this feast of tabernacles, uh, they had this illumination of the temple. We talked about that. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. It it was in the midst of this court of women, this, this treasury, there were four great candelabras that were placed in, the, in this temple court area. And when they would light these temples, uh, the, these, these candelabras, it would shine, the entire temple would be lit up, even part of the city. It was to remind them of God's Shekinah glory, the cloud, the fire uh, a cloud and the pillar of cloud that walked with them in the wilderness for 40 years that protected them. And they were to remember God's provision and God's light and God's cloud and God's Shekinah glory that came down in this cloud. And that's when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is claiming, I am the light of the world. Walk with me. I am the Shekinah glory. I am the presence of God. I am the visible manifestation The invisible made visible. I am the presence of God. I am God incarnate walking among you. And then Jesus, in a rather bold way, says he's the ultimate deliverer. We saw that two weeks ago. I I will deliver you from the slavery of sins. He says in chapter 8, verse 24, unless you believe that I am the God of Abraham, the God of the universe, you will die in your sins. You will die separated from me. You will die without forgiveness unless you believe that I am he. We saw that two weeks ago. Look at verse 31. Chapter 8. Verse 30. It says, many believed in him. Many many said, okay, this, this is the Christ. This is the one who says, if you die without me, you will die eternally away from me. And this says that many believed in him. And then 31, Jesus wants to challenge them on their faith. He says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He says, if you really believe, hold on to my word. Continue in my word. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We said last week that the freedom he's talking about is not only the penalty of sin, that Jesus took our penalty, but being free gradually from the power of sin, and then finally from the presence of sin in glory. The atmosphere couldn't get any more difficult and hostile. The Jewish people are hearing all this, are getting more and more upset. Their response is, who are you to tell us that we are slaves to sin, that we are dead in our sins, that we are trapped in sin? We are Abraham's offspring. We saw that last week. Look with me in chapter 8. Verse 39, they say, Abraham is our father. 
Abraham as our father. How can we be enslaved to sin? How can we have that when we have Abraham as our father? And Jesus reminds them that their, their slavery to sin is this habitual, persistent, relentless attitude of lawlessness. And because of that, it was clear to Jesus, he's making it clear to them that they were not really descendants of Abraham. Sure, they were physical descendants, but they were not spiritual descendants. We covered this last week, but I just want to read a verse to you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. This is what Paul said. Just as Abraham believed God, Abraham's faith in God, it was counted to him, his faith in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is making very clear that faith, not works, is a prerequisite to becoming a child of God. And then Paul goes on to say, know then that it is those of faith who are children of Abraham. As the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, by faith he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. In you, he said, God said, shall all the nations be blessed. Paul then writes, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul's words, Romans 9. Again, we dealt with this last week. Jesus saying, listen, you guys are acting like the enemy. You guys are acting like the devil. You guys are treating me, dishonoring me. You're not acting like the man of faith. Abraham was a man of faith. He heard God's call. He responded to God's call. He believed God. He believed the truth. He believed God when God said, go to a, get out of paganism and go to a land I will show you. And obedience followed true faith. Obedience follows true faith. We pick up our text right there. The conflict from chapter 7 through chapter 8 is escalating and escalating and escalating. Jesus is making himself known to the people and the people don't want to hear it. Over and over and over again, he's making many claims to the crowd, but the crowd, the Jewish people, are trying everything they can to not respond, to avoid dealing with who Jesus is claiming to be. Now, I said this last week, and before we get into the text, let me say it one more time. Jesus calls the Jewish people slaves to sin, the father of the devil. In no way is that in any way anti-Semitic language. The scripture teaches us very clearly that all people who, are, who have rejected Christ, who want nothing to do with forgiveness, are in bondage to sin. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world. He's talking to the Jewish people, but the scripture speaks to all of us who reject Christ. That we're in bondage to sin. Another verse, Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, chapter 2. We know that we are from God, excuse me, and you, all of you, it's plural, were dead in sin. All of you walked according to the course of this world. All of you followed the prince and the power of the air that is now at work in disobedience to you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love he had for you, you were dead in your sins, but he made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So the whole world, maybe you never heard that before. The whole world is in bondage to sin. It loves it, it runs to it, it loves darkness. And Jesus says, unless I set you free, unless I release you from that bondage, unless I pay the penalty for your sins, you're still enslaved to it. They were not happy. They were not happy about that. 
And our text this morning brings Christ's claims about himself to a conclusion. I want you to see that this morning. It brings Christ's claims to a conclusion and their rejection to a conclusion. My prayer this morning, as we look at these two opposites, Jesus' claims about himself come to a colossal end, and their rejection of him, of chapter 8, comes to a colossal end. I hope that we are on the side of Jesus this morning. That none of us are rejecting him as they reject him, but embracing him and loving him as the God who he claims to be. That's my prayer for you this morning. Simple outline. Number one, his claim of gaining glory. Number two, his claim of defeating death. And number three, his claim of everlasting existence. Many times when I turn to this passage, chapter 8, we all immediately run verse 58. It's, it's a colossal claim. It's an unbelievable claim. But there's more to the text. That's why I want to start with number one, the claim of gaining glory. Jesus tells them, verse 47, that they're not descendants of his. Look at chapter 8, verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them, very simply, is that you're not of God. Bible-thumping religious leaders dressed in religious robes, carrying their Bibles, hated Jesus, didn't want his word, didn't care what he said or did, is declaring evidence or their evidence toward they don't want nothing to do with God. Jesus just makes it clear to them. Look at verse 48. And the Jews answered him, Ah, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? (laughs) Any kind of intellectual, intellectual, theological argument fails, just revert to name-calling. You know, racial slurs. You know, you're having this debate 10 minutes, you find like, you're stupid. You know, I can't win any other way, you're just an idiot. You know, that's, what, that's, that's really what he's saying. It's a racial slur. Like, um, everything we try to combat against you, Lord, you have an answer for that, so you're a Samaritan. You're a demon. That's all I had. Now, Calling Jesus Samaritan is a slap in the face. You may not know that. If you remember from chapter 4, the Jews despised the Samaritans. They were physical and spiritual half-breeds. That's why the woman in chapter 4, the woman of Samaria at the well, was surprised that Jesus would talk to her, not only because she's a woman, but the Jews did not have any dealings with Samaritans. They were descendants of Jewish people who remained in the northern kingdom after the kingdom had fallen. And they intermarried with pagans, and they were from the Syrian army, and these, you know, they had their own place of worship, they only had half the Bible, and the Jews did not like them at all. In fact, when we studied Ezra, if you remember Nehemiah Ezra, they offered to help rebuild the temple when they came back from exile, and they're like, no thank you, half-breeds, you can go your own way, and they got very angry. Between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New, about 400 years, the hostility grew and grew and grew. Until we open up in the New Testament, and the hostility is very still, very there. The Samaritans were hated and dishonored, and their comment was meant to disclose disclose that to Jesus. Nowhere in the scripture is Jesus called a Samaritan but here. A demon, they call him that all the time. But the identity of Jesus is not only paramount since he... Since he got to Jerusalem, chapter 7, verse 14, the the identity of Jesus was not only paramount since his arrival, but it's of eternal importance. Hear me, family. 
The identity of Jesus is not only been paramount since the arrival, but his identity is of eternal importance. As I was studying this week, thinking, wow, they've got a lot of things to say about Jesus since he arrived at the temple in chapter 7, verse 14. Let me, let me just see what they say. Let me just throw it at you. They said he was a miracle worker, a genie in a bottle. That's what they called him. His brothers called him that. Some said he was simply a good man. Some said he was leading people astray. Some said he was a demon. That was chapter 7, verse 20. They do it again here. Some say, you know what? Maybe, maybe he is the Christ. Some said he was born of immorality, meaning we don't know. Your mom's talking about virgin birth. We don't know nothing about that. We don't know where you came from. And now he's a descendant of hated half-breeds and a demon. All of this is a way to distance themselves from who Jesus really is and dishonor him and discredit him. And what's so amazing, if you have your Bible open, you might want to jot this down. What's so amazing is that rather than send hot tar and fire from heaven and blow the place up, I probably would have done it because I'm wicked. Jesus loves them and he's still dialoguing with them. It is, it is they that want to kill him. He's just, look at verse 49. Jesus answered them. All right, you called me this, this racial, this crazy slur. You're trying to dishonor and discredit me. I do not have a demon. He's responding. But I honor my father. You dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. That's what they're doing. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Drop down to verse 54. It picks up the theme again of glory. Like, who does he think he is? Verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Verse 55. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say, I don't know him, I'm a liar like you. But I know him, and I keep his word. So what does it mean to be glorified by God? What does it mean to honor and glorify God? What does it mean to honor? What is honor? Honor has to do with one's perspective, one's opinion, one's thoughts about something or someone, what they believe about them. It, it has to do with value. Honor has to do, and glory has to do with value, has to do with significance, has to do with worth, treasuring something, okay? You may have something, maybe a, 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 a hobby or something that you collect that you really honor. No one's allowed to touch it. When I was growing up, we had a neighborhood Uh, a a family friend of ours that had their furniture covered in plastic. They honored that couch. Don't touch it, right? (laughs) Some of you are like, yeah, I had a family like that too. We were not one of those. But what is important to talk about glory and honor is the difference between, listen, intrinsic glory, intrinsic glory and honor, and ascribed glory and honor. Intrinsic and ascribed. The difference between finite glory and infinite glory is very important. As you read the scripture, you understand the two. Only God, only God has infinite, intrinsic glory. His value, his worth is incalculable. He is infinitely valuable in himself, and God shares that intrinsic, infinite glory with no one. Isaiah, very clear. The Lord speaking through the prophet. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Nor my praise to carven idols. 
When the scripture speaks about our glory, man's glory and honor, it's described glory. In other words, it has been bestowed upon us because we are created by God. I talk about the imago Dei, image and likeness of God. God, when we are born, we are described glory because we belong to our creator. That's why it's so important. That's why it's murder to take a life of an unborn child who's made in the image and likeness of God with all dignity and honor. So we have described glory. Our glory is finite. His glory is infinite. Our glory has limits. It's granted to us by our creator. It's not intrinsic in the sense that we have glory in and of ourselves. We sing glory to God all the time. Bring glory to God. We don't mean we're adding to glory. We're not, he's already infinitely glorious. He is already infinitely intrinsic glorified in himself. So when the, when the, when the, when the Old Testament cries out in First Chronicles, ascribe to the Lord glory. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. We're not adding to it. Right? What we're doing is we, we are choosing, we are exalting him in a sense of choosing and responding to the worth and value of God. Infinite glory, intrinsic glory belongs to God. Finite glory, ascribed glory is what we do. That's really important, and I'll tell you why. In our text, when Jesus claims that God Almighty who shares his infinite and transient glory is incalculable worth with no one, is not only seeking Jesus' glory and honoring him, but glorifying him. We cannot understand that to mean that somehow we are bringing Jesus down, but the opposite, that God is now seeking and gaining, ascribing and gaining back and unveiling Jesus' infinite intrinsic glory. Does that make sense to you? It's not simple human glory. That's not what's being said here. You say, well, where do you get that from? The Apostle John wrote this gospel account. He wrote it after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He wrote it years after. And as he's writing this, it says in chapter 20, he's only adding to the things that will will help us understand who Jesus is. And as he's writing chapter 8 on what took place as the Spirit of God is is revealing to him, he already knows what he's going to say in chapter 17. Following that? This is what he said in chapter C, and I just want you to listen to this for a minute. Jesus is praying to the Father. John is there listening, eyewitness, and here's Jesus praying to his Father. This is what he said. I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, Jesus speaking, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Infinite, intrinsic glory. Incalculable worth, honor, praise to the Son. Do you understand that implication there? Number one, Jesus is to be honored, worshipped, treasured, valued, regarded as infinitely valued just as God himself. That's what he's saying. This monotheistic one worship of the one God Jewish people know who the God of the Old Testament is. He's a jealous God. He doesn't share his glory with anyone. And now Jesus is claiming right in front of them that he is standing right in front of them. 
the God of the Old Testament, the monotheistic God in which they worship, Jesus is saying, I've got that glory. Number two, not only should we honor, revered, and regard as infinitely valued, but number two, no other religious leader, listen, no other religious leader, no other religious understanding, none, makes such a claim. No one. No, no one can make such a claim. And Jesus is saying, if you honor me, if you love me, if you glorify me as infinitely incalculable, worthy of worship, then you worship the Father as well. You have to go through the Son. John, Jesus said in 523, John, all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. You see what he's saying? This is an absolute stunning statement Jesus is making. I don't seek my glory. My father glorifies me. My father is seeking my glory. Yet the one who says he will share his glory with no one. How could Jesus make such a claim? Because he is God incarnate. That's the only answer. That's the only answer. Stunning. And that's why look at verse 50. He says, I don't seek my glory. It's not even that Jesus is making this up. I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it. He is the judge. Listen, you guys think you're the judge? He is the judge. He is worthy. He is pointing to me. He is glorifying me, yet you fail to. Philippians chapter two. Paul says, the son obediently humbled himself. You guys know the passage. Even to the point of death on a cross. And then God, God the father, highly exalted him mega exalted, super exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that every knee, not some, every single knee will bow to Jesus. Those in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, listen, to the glory of God the Father, to the beauty majesty, incalculable worth of God the Father. Do you see the claim Jesus is making? Family, this is not just glory. This is not infinite glory. This is not simply just ascribe glory. This is infinite beauty, incalculable worth, ultimate treasure of the universe standing right before them. But they disrespect him and honor, dishonor him. And Jesus says, verse 55, you have not known him. I know him. If you were to say that I do know him, I'd be a liar just like you. Let me ask you, do you treasure Jesus? Do you love him? Do you treasure him? Do you see him as glorious in your life? Are there other things grabbing for your attention, for your time, for your value, for your worth, are those things pushing, pushing Jesus aside in your life? Jesus says, my father glorifies me. Everybody else is trying to get glory. We need to respond to that glorious truth that Christ is trying to show us. Number two, the claim of defeating death. All over this chapter, as I, as I was studying this, all over this chapter, the temple, he's at the feast, you know, he's at the temple. Um, there's all kinds of allusions to death. If you remember, I'll, just throw, I'll throw a few out there as we close to chapter 8. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, speaking about his death. 
Jesus said that he was going away and that you could not come, speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection. It says that part of the crowd wanted Jesus dead. Jesus said you will die in your sins. You're a slave to sin. You will die in your sin. Jesus said that the devil is a murderer from the beginning. There's death all over this chapter. And Jesus deals with it head on in chapter 8, verse 51. Truly, truly, solemn, emphatic, unarguable, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. The prophets, they've died. How can you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Taste and seeing, kind of the same thing. Are you greater than Abraham who died, prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? We've seen this over and over again. Jesus is talking to them about spirit stuff and they're looking at physical stuff jesus talked about the temple they're like oh you know you could destroy this temple jesus like no we're talking about my body jesus talking about being born again jesus talked about water bread descendants and they think physical they take you know they take it to mean what they see and jesus saying no it's about the spirit it's what the spirit is doing paul said in first corinthians 2 the natural man does not understand the things of the spirit they're not getting it they're not understanding what jesus is saying so What is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying that those who believe in him, trust in him, will not die? Jesus is going to die. Jesus will literally die on the cross for our sins. Jesus is not talking about evading death. Jesus is talking about escaping death. Jesus is not talking about avoiding literal death. He's talking about, ultimately, about defeating death. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying. So what does it mean? What does Jesus say that... He's going to die, but he says, if you believe in me and you trust in me, you will not die. What does he mean by saying that you will not see death, you will not experience death, and yet he himself will die? What does that mean? Jesus standing in the tomb of Lazarus. We'll get there. Jesus standing at the tomb, and what does he say? I am the resurrection and life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. Now listen carefully to this. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Right, you've heard that before. Yet he die, yet shall he live. And then he says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Okay, well, wait a minute. Though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Either you shall never die, or you're dying and you're living. Well, what is he trying to say? You know, there's a very real sense, as real as the hand connected to my arm, That when we look at those who have died in Christ, when we look at those in the the coffin, and we look at those who love Jesus, follow Jesus, we can declare they are not dead. They are not dead. When does life begin? When does eternal life begin? We saw this already. John 5, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word, believes who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but pass from death to life has eternal present tense continuing on. He passed from judgment, which is spiritual death, into life. Eternal begins when we receive Christ. Has eternal life. You remember the Bible says there's physical death, there's spiritual death, and there's eternal death. Romans says there's no judgment, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus came, took on flesh and bone, born of a virgin, 
became like us in every way, yet without sin, to conquer sin and death. Jesus is not talking about us escaping the experience of physical death, but escaping eternal death. Because he, Jesus, conquered and tasted death for us. You need to hear that this morning. Marking your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews 2, 9. The author writes, But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. There's that glory and honor again. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of flesh and blood. That through death, listen, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who, through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. Glory, honor, Jesus, tasting death, overcoming death, fear, slavery, setting us free from fear from slavery is because Jesus tasted death for all of us. That's what it says. Made me think about fear of death. How many people fear death? In 1973, Ernest Becker, he's a cultural anthropologist, wrote a very famous book, 1970, if you were around, I was around, The Denial of Death. It was written in 1973, ironically, 1974, he was given the Pulitzer Prize, uh, Prize, and he died two months before he got it. The book claims that every cultural background are too terrified of death to face it. That's his book. And because fear is so deeply rooted in our souls, and because it is much more powerful than the immediate fears of one daily's life, he said the near universal response has been to deny that fear is coming. Here's his thesis. This is what he writes. The main thesis of this book is that the fear of death haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death to overcome it by denying in some way that is the final destiny for man. He also writes, to live fully is to live with an awareness of the rumble of terror that underlies everything. He has no answer for it. He doesn't give answers for the fear of death. He's just saying everyone is afraid of death. It actually agrees with what we read in Hebrews. Because of the fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. Listen, are we really naive, peekaboo? We only deal with death at moments of, of, of facing it for the moment, and then we go on our very way. Let's be honest, even the most confident, sincere believer has occasions of fearing death. Why is that? Why does the scripture say it and even in experience say that we are afraid of death? Because death is not your friend. Death is not part of life as some stupid people have said. Death is part of the curse. Death is not part of God's plan, original plan in creation. It's not a friend, it 
needs to be embraced. It is an enemy that needs to be crushed and conquered and defeated. The introduction of death was part of the curse admitted into the world because of sin. And those who reject Christ, who are slaves to sin without Christ, who deny the penalty of sin that's required of them, have every right and should be afraid of death. John Piper takes Hebrews 2 about Jesus, honor, glory, overcoming death, and then this guy Becker's book side by side as he reads both of them and listen to his response. I love it. He says both, Scripture and this book, uh, The Fear of Death by Becker, he says both say that the fear of death produces a pervasive lifelong bondage, both of them. Even when we don't realize it, fear is haunting our choices, making us Cautious, restrained, confined, narrow, tight, robbing us of risk and adventure and dreams for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and the cause of love in the world. It freezes us. He writes, without even knowing it, fear of death is a slave master, binding us with invisible ropes, confining us to a small, safe, self-centered way of life, end quote. His point What if we can be so sure right now, if we could be so sure about never, ever experiencing death? What if we were so confident in the one who conquered death, defeated death for us? What if we were not relying on anything we do, have done, hope to do, to gain eternal life and escape death? What if Jesus alone His work on the cross freed us from the fear of death. What would happen? What would happen to you? What would happen to me? Would there be a radical change of behavior? Would there be a radical freedom from fear? Huge generosity. We're not taking anything with us. Not clinging so tight to the things of this world. Jesus said, if anyone who keeps my word, he will never, ever, double negative, never, ever see death. I am the resurrection and life. If you believe in me, though you die, yet shall you live. Anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he said to Martha? How do I go without fear? How do I go on without anxiety over death? Each second of my life pushing me closer to the end. It's by believing and holding on to Jesus. His word. His word is not just listening with our ears, but treasuring it, listening to it, obeying it, following it, trusting that Jesus made this substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for our sins. He went into a dark tomb, and three days later, it is empty. The Bible says that he's the first fruit of many who will follow after him. If Christ is in you this morning, If you have been born again, born anew, if God's eternal spirit has united you in Christ, it is eternal. 1 Peter 1.23 told that believers are born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. The fellowship we enjoy with our eternal God cannot end. It cannot be broken. It's eternal. Hear that this morning. If we belong to Christ, our bodies will die, but we Do not, we cannot for a second, a millisecond, experience any break in fellowship with our God. In fact, death, physical death, just brings us into a fuller communion, into perfection with God. Philippians 1, for to me, 
To live, Paul says, is Christ. To die is gain. Gain. I don't know what I said. I don't know what I should choose. I'm hard pressed between the two. I want to stay and serve you, he says. My desire is to part, depart. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Wow. The life we have in Christ and God today because of our faith will never end. We will never see. We will never taste death. That's what Jesus is saying. Radically changes our entire life. But how can we absolutely be sure? Is it simply because Jesus said so? Let me give you my third point. Because this, is, this, will, this will solidify for us. His claim. His everlasting claim. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. No one really knows exactly what day he's talking about. Maybe Genesis 15 when he looked at this, when he was in his trance. They think maybe when, they, when he saw um, Isaac and he's seen the fulfillment of the covenantal promise. People have all kinds of different ideas. I think Calvin does a good job. He says, Abraham's joy, the day in which Jesus is claiming he saw my day, he, he saw this and he was glad. Calvin writes, Abraham's joy testifies that he regarded the knowledge of the kingdom of Christ as an incomparable treasure. And the reason why we are told that he rejoiced to see the day of Christ is that we may know, that he may know that there is nothing which has valued more highly. Abraham saw my day. Maybe he saw the covenant of the promise. Maybe when he saw his son, he thought... God promised that he would send the son in the lineage of, my, of, of me. And, and this is just the, 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 the beginning of the promise. I wasted all your time just now because, look, the Jews don't really care. <laughs> all the commentaries do. But the Jews, people are like, what day are you talking about? They don't ask that. The Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old. We're not, we're not really concerned about what day you're talking about right now. You're like 50. Abraham has been dead a long time. Prophets have been dead a long time. You're not yet 50 years old, probably around 34. How do you see Abraham? Jesus said in verse 58, underline this in your Bible. Next time Jehovah's Witnesses come to your house, you can show them this verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, before Abraham came into being, I am. Write in your Bible, Exodus 3.14, next to that verse, okay? Some of you don't know what Exodus 3.14. Exodus, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. God makes a promise to Abraham. God makes a promise first to, to Adam and Eve that he's gonna send a son. Then he continues his covenant promise to Abraham. Exodus opens up with the word and. It's a continuation of the covenantal promise God made from Genesis 3.15 to the covenant he made with Abraham in Genesis 15. It's, it's a continuation Exodus opens up in slavery, ends in worship. Sound familiar? Slavery and worship. And in chapter 3, Moses, walking around, minding his own business, tending to his flock, looks around, and there's a bush on fire. That's not that interesting, but it's not being consumed. So, like, that's interesting. That bush is on fire, and it's, nothing's happening to it. Let me go check it out. Me, I would think I was having a flashback, but... Chapter 3, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned around, that Moses was walking toward the bush, God Almighty called Moses out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am, as if God didn't know where he was. Oh, I didn't see you there. 
Now he's having an encounter with God, his first encounter. And the Lord says to him in Genesis 3, I am the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid. Then the Lord said to him, listen, I have seen the affliction of my people. They were in bondage. They were in Egypt. I've heard their cry. I know their suffering. I've come down. I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to take them out of a bondage of Egypt. I'm going to bring them to the land of milk and honey. And by the way, you're going to do it. I will send you to Pharaoh that you will bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses processing this information. I can see him now thinking, all right, I'm going to the most powerful man in the world, ruler, let free work, you know, the people you have in slavery, those who are giving you free stuff, right, free labor, you need to let them go because a burning bush told me so and I'm here to tell you. <laughs> Moses said to God, How am I gonna, who, who am I going to say sent me? Chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am. I am who I am. Go and say to the people, I am has sent you. The Hebrew term and the Greek term I am is very, very, very important. Ego am I in, in the Greek. Okay, very important. I am means this. I am self-existent. I am independent of anything and everyone. I am self-sufficient. I don't have any unmet, unmet needs no unsatisfied desires. I don't need anything or anyone to accomplish my will. I am the God who, from everlasting to everlasting, have existed unchangeable forever. I am, always was. What I am, what I will be, what I will ever for be, eternally existing with no beginning, no end. Make no mistake, family, when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, Jesus identifying himself with the self-identification that God said to Moses in Genesis 3.14. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. As if I just happen to exist, I'm a few thousand years old or a few hundred years old, and I just look great for my age. Before Abraham was, before Abraham came into existence, he had a beginning and an end. I have none. That's what he's saying. Okay, Kent, uh, Homer Kent in his commentary says this. By using the timeless I am rather than I was, Jesus conveyed not only the idea of existence prior to Abraham, but timelessness, the very nature of God himself. Look at verse 59. People say, oh, no, no, that's not, that's not what he meant. Really? A claim to being God, a claim to being one with God, a claim that Jesus is making himself out to be God is blasphemy. What is the penalty? Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, and he hid himself and went out of the temple. They understood what Jesus was saying. They know Abraham. They know Moses. They know the I am, and they were going to pummel him for blasphemy two applications two applications to close number one Jesus' claim is off the chart and exclusively different than any other religion throughout this gospel account Jesus is making it very clear the living water the living bread he is telling them what and who he is, and here he makes a very clear statement, I'm the invisible made visible. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God 
of your fathers here in human form. The creator, the eternal, transcendent God has taken on flesh and blood and now made his home with us. No other religion can make that claim. No other person, either Jesus is fully God or a lunatic. But I'll tell you what, family, if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ, you have no option but to respond. The claims demand a response. The claims demand a response and cannot be ignored. And that's application number one. Application number two. Three ways to approach death. I noticed what you came here to hear this morning. Three ways to approach death. One, we could deny it. We can face death and deny its reality and stay in slavery to fear of death. Every time we face death, we could sweep it under the rug. Becker writes in his book, Modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness. Or he's spending his time shopping, which is the same thing. We can face death with denial of death. We can face it at times in our lives, at periods in our life, and then go and make believe it doesn't exist. Number two, we can face it without hope. You can face the ugliness and despair of anxiety. We can look at cancer, heart attacks, car accidents as an in, uh, just a reality. We can watch the clock tick. But I'm going to tell you this morning, everyone dies. You could be the greatest entertainer named Prince or you're the greatest comedian named Robin Williams. Everyone will face death. Physical death comes to us all. Deny it, face it without hope, or number three. Number three, we can look at the one who said, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who keeps my word, he will never see death. Spiritual, eternal separation from God. You will never see it because Jesus himself tasted death for you. Listen, there is no greater assurance that one can have to escape death than the one who has defeated death who says, I am. Do you see that? How can you possibly have a greater promise and a greater assurance of life in death than the one who was, continues to be, and will ever be? The God who exists eternally with no beginning, no end says, before Abraham was, I am. And if you keep my word, you will never see death. The claim of Jesus that he was the great I am. He took on flesh and blood. He died in our place. He experienced physical death. He even experienced to some degree eternal death when he hung on the cross. And then for a moment, the father turned his face from him and he said, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What's eternity? What is death in eternity? Absent from God. Absent from his love. And Jesus on the cross is hanging there and cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Experienced separation from his father where he bore our sins on the cross to triumph over sin and death. He is the only one and the only way we can be free from this lifelong bondage of fear and death. If you don't know Christ this morning, if you never completely trusted him, yielded him as your Savior and Lord, do so today. Confess your sins, acknowledge your inability to do anything about your sins, and believe on Jesus who paid the penalty, who took your sin, dying as your substitute on the cross. Turn to him in repentance. Bow your knee to the great I am. But you have to respond. Jesus is saying, I share 
intrinsic glory. Jesus saying, I defeated death. Jesus saying, I am the creator God who died for you and you will never, ever see or taste death if you trust me. If you're a Christian today, are you afraid of death? John Calvin writes, when faith quickens the soul of a man, death already has its sting extracted and its venom removed and so cannot afflict a deadly wound. Close your Bibles, give me one minute, and listen to me. I want everyone here to be able to say with the Apostle Apostle Paul, when the perish, when the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Its power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the assurance we have. A little over a month before he died, a famous atheist French philosopher, Jean Paul Sartre, declared that he so strongly resisted feelings of despair that he would say to himself, I know I shall die in hope. Didn't care about God. But the fear of death was mingling in his soul. And then in profound sadness before he died, he said, but hope needs a foundation. And yet Dr. Meyer, F.B. Meyer died. And he writes to his friends, I've just heard, to my great surprise, that I have but a few days to live. It may be that before this reaches you, I'll be dead. I'll be in the place of eternity. Don't trouble the right. We shall meet in the morning. That's the foundation of hope. But we see him for a little while. Made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory, crowned with honor, because of the suffering unto death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, took on flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver us, all those who believe through the fear of death, who are subject to lifelong slavery. Father, how, where can we go to hear the words of eternal life? And Father, there may be some people here maybe don't want to think about death, don't want to think about their eternity, don't want to think about what happened to them, but Lord, tomorrow's not granted to us. Today's not even granted to us. The next five minutes is not even granted to us. Father, I ask that you would show us that we are here but a moment. But Lord, not without hope and not in despair. Help us to rejoice in the reality of the great I am. You, O Lord, have come in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, obeyed the law perfectly, and died an atoning substitutionary death in our place, rising three days later. The tomb is empty. And Lord, with all hope and assurance, we will not cling to the things of this world. We will serve you well here. We will love you well. We will honor and glorify you well here. But Father, our hope and our eyes are fixed upon Jesus. The eternity we have with him begins the moment we said yes to him. Father, I ask that you would help us to worship him and to trust him and to love him and to run to him, to worship him and to praise him.